from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Well, hello and welcome to the latest podcast from the Center for European Reform. I'm Ian Bond, the CER's Deputy Director. Ukraine marks a number of anniversaries in February. On the positive side, it's the 10th anniversary of the Revolution of Dignity, which ended with the flight of the kleptocratic President Viktor Yanukovych from Kiev. But more sadly, it's also the 10th anniversary of the appearance in Crimea of little green men, Russian forces without insignia, which led a few weeks later to Russia's annexation of the peninsula and then to Russia's intervention in eastern Ukraine. And of course, it's also the second anniversary of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine on February the 24th, 2022, an invasion that launched a war that has cost, according to President Volodymyr Zelensky, the lives of 31,000 Ukrainian troops, and many times that number of Russian service personnel, not to mention all the civilians who have lost their lives or been injured or displaced. So it's a moment to review what's happened, to take stock of where we are, and to think about what should happen next. And I'm delighted to have Hannah Schellest and Dame Melinda Simmons with me to discuss these topics. So welcome to you both. So just to introduce the two of you briefly, Hannah Schellest is the director of the Security Studies Program at the Ukrainian PRISM Foreign Policy Council, a Ukrainian think tank. And she's also the editor-in-chief of UA Ukraine Analytica and head of the board of the NGO Promotion of Intercultural Cooperation. And she served previously for more than 10 years as a senior researcher at the Odessa branch of the National Institute for Strategic Studies under the president of Ukraine. Dame Melinda Simmons was the British ambassador to Ukraine from September 2019 to August 2023. Before that, she'd worked in the UK's National Security Secretariat and in the Foreign and Commonwealth Office's Conflict Department, as well as in a wide range of jobs in the Department for International Development, including dealing with Europe, the Middle East and North Africa, and Southern Africa. So, Hannah, if I can start with you, most people in the West think of this war as going on for two years, but really it started in 2014 with the annexation of Crimea. But I'm interested, how did the war in the East feel to people in Odessa in the eight years between 2014 and 2022? Were people sort of taken by surprise by what happened in February 2022, or did it just feel like another stage in a continuing conflict? That's quite difficult to say because that's also dependent on how much people being involved in news or in understanding the political life around. Because partially Odessa always presented itself as peaceful city that just like to see what is very local, how to have this certain stability in the city. And a little bit relaxed after May 2014, because if you remember at the beginning of 2014, Odessa, one of those regions where Russians tried also to evolve the separatist movement, there were tragic protests 
past, uh, there have been uh, a lot of, of the events on the south of the region that de facto everybody being expected that Odessa should be the next after Donetsk and uh, Lugansk. It hasn't happened, and that's why uh, those people whose relatives being involved in the military or in the security services, experts who follow the early conflict uh, warning uh, situation, definitely been uh, very well aware and monitored all these eight years what Russian malign influence is doing in Odessa. But at the same time, if we speak about the general public, I would say that till 2021, everything been quite a calm because that's just the news and news were not daily. And let's be honest, that was also the problem of the information campaign, both in Ukraine and abroad, that as soon as you are not hearing about deaths, you assume that nothing serious is happening. But I would say that probably since autumn 2021, that's when the mood started to change and the preparation started, because if the full-fledged invasion started in February 2022, for Odessa, the first signals that something is wrong started several weeks before this, when Russians blocked the ports and the navigation. That was already a signal that Russia is ready to go the next step compared to the previous just information or work through the proxies in the region. That's interesting that people started to notice the difference maybe in the autumn of 2021. So, Melinda, you arrived in Kiev in 2019. So when Russia started to increase the pressure on Ukraine with the sort of naval blockade and the big exercises on the border in 2021, how did the atmosphere in Kiev change? And when did the Zelensky administration start to take the threat of war really seriously? The first thing to say is that I did not have two years of relative peace. I had four months of relative peace. And that is because COVID began in 2020. And, you know, flights were grounded and everyone was isolated from February. And that had a profound impact on Ukraine. Did not have access to PPE immediately and didn't have access to vaccine technology immediately. And all kinds of issues bound up actually with the incursion were being faced in the Donbass when vaccines started to come out. I mean, intertwined with the invasion in terms of whether they would take Sputnik vaccine or whether you would buy, you know, how you would distribute Western vaccine. There was no dividing actually the COVID experience from the war experience. That's the first thing. And aside from that, of course, business was not as usual at all in terms of not being able to sit with people. So it was a tough couple of years that we thought we were coming out of before we went into war. The second thing is I completely recognise Hannah's commentary that we were also observing, of course, in 21. So the first time we began to notice a change was after the Paris summit in December of 19. And this was because it became clear that after that summit, Putin concluded that Zelensky was not the manageable, influenceable leader that he thought he might be, because of course it was after that summit that President Zelensky made clear statements about Crimea being part of Ukraine, clear statements about the Donbass being part of Ukraine, that you began to see a slight but definite uptick in the number of military casualties picked off by snipers in the east of the country. A slight uptick of civilians being caught up, so of homes being targeted, not just accidentally stepping on a landmine, although that also happened, and you saw more landmines being laid. And OSC monitors throughout the whole of the subsequent year, aside from their issues with COVID, which was beginning to be instrumentalised as a reason to limit their access. So the truth is that actually, even before we saw troops and kits start to up on the northern and southern and uh, eastern borders of Ukraine in April 21, which was when we started to get seriously concerned for the first time, we were already seeing that trajectory. So that's really interesting because I think most people will not have picked that up even in the West. I think it was sort of the big exercises was really the first time that people started to wake up to the fact that maybe something was going on that we needed to pay more attention to. Do you think at that stage that the Ukrainian government itself thought that something was going to happen or did they just think, you know, this was about putting pressure on them? 
Uh, they thought the latter, and precisely because they've been living in a state of partial war since uh, 2014, every time, and, and when I talk about an uptick in casualties, you're always talking single figures, not enough actually for allied governments to start to get concerned, just something to begin to show that boiling frog style, the pressure was, was on the increase. So the Ukrainian government was of the view that pressure was being applied, but pressure was always being applied. I travelled with the president and his delegation several times. I went to Avdiivka, I mean, well before the war. You could see how hairy it was there, well before two years ago. So if you're already starting with a higher level of pressure, where fighting is going on on the contact line, and you're losing soldiers in kind of twos and threes, I'm sorry to say it's still not enough, really, to start a, an international movement that tells you that Russia is, is on the move. Yeah, that's interesting. The the boiling the frog is, it, you know, I've heard it so often, and it is such a dangerous metaphor in a way, but such a, yes. a sort of dangerous idea that uh, just sort of don't really notice what's happening until it's too late. So, Anna, after what was really still a great shock in February 2022, from sort of April 2022 onwards, Ukraine had considerable success in pushing the Russians back in a number of areas. But then we have almost no movement in 2023. And the last few months have been evidently very difficult with the counteroffensive making very little progress, support from the West coming more slowly, and now with the, the loss of Avdiivka. So what is the mood in Ukraine now? I mean, is your sense that most people want to fight on, or are people starting to think that a ceasefire would be better than continuing to suffer more casualties? I mean, it's interesting because in the West, I have heard from people very recently saying, well, Ukraine can't go on bleeding like this for much longer. They need to get into negotiations and do a deal. But is that how people in Ukraine see it? Or are people still continuing to think that we have to fight on? You know, the determination is still in Ukraine because definitely we value each death and each sacrifice that us and citizens are taking. But at the same time, we understand how many people are at the occupied territories and what is happening with them or what can be the worst situation because we understand that the ceasefire. And let's remember that since Minsk agreements in 2015, we had numerous and numerous dozens of the ceasefires. They never been, uh, first of all, followed by the Russian Federation. They always been violated. But then they were not bringing us any real negotiations and the agreements. So here we already had the negotiations in March, April 2022. And we know what Russia requested de facto is not only the loss of Ukrainian sovereignty, but uh, just dismounting of the Ukrainian nationhood and statehood. And that was before Bucher, Pein, before Bakhmut, before all our Mariupol and all other tragedies. So we understand what Russia is bringing. And we also hear from the Russian statements that de facto the idea is just to destroy Ukraine as a state. Ceasefire will be just time for them to accumulate the efforts. Partially, you know, when I hear from uh, some of my international colleagues, and I would not hear tell Western because I would say that in the global south, I hear it even more. All these talks about the negotiations, about the ceasefire and everything. That sounds a little bit like, you know, that's nice to see it in your chair somewhere in the peaceful library and to talk about this, but not when you experience everything or you know what is happening with the uh, towns uh, of your families or with your 
your friends at the front line. That's partially, I mean, maybe my metaphor will be a little bit uh, too strong, but that is how some family members are trying to persuade women to stay in the family with the abusive relations, just uh, with the reasons, how will you survive without him? Or you have joined kids. That's always easy to speak when you are not involved in this. That's always easier to give advices. From Ukrainian side, it doesn't mean that Ukraine doesn't want peace. It doesn't mean that Ukrainian people don't want any type of the calmness. But at the same time, we look to the negotiations as the tool. For me, the question is always, what is these negotiations about? What we are going to talk about? Who will monitor or control this ceasefire? The fact that this, what you said, like with this counteroffense, Ukraine lost several months because at that time, Russians started to speak about the certain possible ceasefire. Some of our partners decided to pose with the intensification of military support. And that gave exactly Russians the time for what? Not to start negotiations, not to exchange the prisoners, not to talk about some normalization, but just to build the proper defense line with the minefields and to increase production of the ammunition. And uh, with Ukrainian, I cannot say that, you know, that's, uh, you presented a little bit of black of white. 2022, Ukraine advancing, then Ukraine cannot advance, then difficult times now. Because first of all, Russia also didn't advance and they wanted, they also started this autumn a strong counteroffensive against Ukraine. What they reach? Avdivka? They tried to capture Avdivka for 10 years, since 2014. It's always been a front line where they shoot it. And uh, the last battle happened for five months or something like this. They lost approximately 20,000 soldiers to capture ruined town of 1,000 people. Can you name it as the success at the battlefield of the big military? Definitely not. Plus, these last six months were very asymmetric. Russia lost nine serious jets and airplanes uh, for the last week. Nine jets, that's huge amount. Russia lost ships because of the use of the marine drones of Ukraine. So they needed de facto to withdraw from Crimea, their main forces to Novorossiysk, and they're not controlling the Black Sea anymore. So if you look only to the front line, whereas the infantry is working, yes, the situation is extremely difficult. But if you look to the whole front and to the different aspects, plus Ukrainian attacks against the energy infrastructure of Russia, the refineries, first of all, that's definitely not a stalemate or attrition, that is just the asymmetric change of the strategy. I absolutely recognize what you say about particularly the naval aspects where, you know, Ukraine has had an astonishing amount of success. But Melinda, if I can come back to you, when you came back from Kiev last summer and you came back to the UK, how well do you think Whitehall understood the stakes in the conflict? I mean, uh, Hannah has just described how existential this is for Ukraine because of the narrative that Russia uses about, you know, Ukraine basically as a kind of integral part of historical Russia and so on. Do you think Whitehall really understood what was at stake? And when you're thinking about the mood in London now, after two years of fighting, do you think that the British government is also suffering from Ukraine fatigue? Or, you know, is that something we've escaped and it's something that's really only affecting the US Congress and countries like Hungary? Thank you. So on the first thing, I think... <laughs> When I first came back from Ukraine, there is a wealth, a world of difference between your understanding of the dynamics of the war, if you're living in it and with it, and if you're watching it from outside. It can't be helped. It's not a criticism. It can't possibly be one. Living inside it and, and living with air raids and people you know being killed and then watching carefully every day for what's going on in the air, what's going on in the sea and what's going on in the trenches. 
in a way that you do not do when you're outside the country. That was the first thing that struck me was differentiation didn't appear to exist and it certainly didn't exist in the media. So in my kind of download meetings, I was sort of filling those sort of gaps in feel really as much as I possibly could and it all credit actually to my colleagues in Whitehall is that they take every opportunity to speak with Ukrainians who come over to get as much as possible of that sense that they can't get for themselves but I think that's a different thing from Ukraine fatigue which I see no signs of in the British government at all. I can't speak for other governments in other countries but I think the quite extraordinary and distinguishing feature of the UK right from the off has been the clarity of policy and the continuity of it. We've changed ministers a few times and that policy has continued and the financial commitments have continued and the political engagement has continued. So I don't see any sign of that. I'm much more concerned about the way in which the Ukraine fight is being presented that can induce fatigue in other parts of society. So this point that Hannah was making about missing the successes that are happening elsewhere, I think that's a really quite serious problem and have spoken with journalists about why they are focusing, actually even, I think, misrepresenting, for example, Ukrainian fatigue. There is Ukrainian fatigue in the sense of Ukrainians being exhausted with this, as anybody would be having to live with it. But I continue not to pick up any sense of Ukrainians no longer wanting to fight. It's an existential thing. They just have to flipping well fight. But journalists who focus on the losses and misrepresenting, actually, in the way that, again, I agree with Hannah, gains, like Avdivka, are making it possible, if you like, for Ukraine fatigue to forge its way through from those who think, well, this can't be won. When in fact, if you differentiate in the way that we were doing, automatically living in the country, you can see quite extraordinary successes, some with Western help, some without. Ukrainians are showing extraordinary capability. Much more needs to be done to balance reporting, to give a good sense of where those successes are. I mean, that's a very, very interesting point about the way in which what we see in the media shapes or potentially at least also shapes policy. So, you know, if people are seeing very depressing yeah. pictures, then the pressure on, on politicians to keep supporting Ukraine is in some ways probably diminished in some places. I think, uh, you know, I can see evidence of that in things that I have heard from some political figures in, in various countries. So that's interesting. But Hannah, I mean, looking to the future a bit, President Zelensky has talked in the last few days about Ukraine becoming more self-reliant for its defence. And that's, I think, a very logical approach when you see that aid from the US is pretty much blocked at the moment and aid from Europe is coming relatively slowly. But how realistic is it for Ukraine to become more self-reliant for its defence? when it's in the middle of a war anyway? And is there more that Europeans can do to help, even if the US is on the sidelines for now? And I'm particularly thinking, you know, is there more that Europeans can do to help that self-reliance in terms of support for Ukrainian defence industrial capacity and so on? Definitely, that is not what we can finally, as the miracle, to recreate in three days. And we are speaking more about the long-term perspective. However, in some of the spheres, we understand that exactly because Ukraine in the war, we can make everything in terms of the processes easier. Because, first of all, you can test everything immediately at the battlefield. You can simplify some of the procedures for the investment in the military industry. Or you already see what are the loopholes in the legislation and how to improve it. Something 
think what during the peace times can take you months and months of discussions in the parliament, for example, or in the ministry. And now everybody understands that the decisions should be made quickly. You don't have time for the hesitation. But if you speak from the production and more from the technical point of view, Ukraine had the background. We had the capacity in the past as one of the, like in 1990s, Ukraine was in the 10 biggest exporters of weapons. The question is sometimes just what type of the weapons that Ukraine were not producing some of the ammunition that now we need, like 155, because we had the Soviet standard, not the NATO standard, and now we have the NATO equipment. And also because we had 30 years of corruption and Russian agents in the military industry. So a lot of being ruined and you need de facto do it from the scratch of finding the old masters who remember how to do it. What European countries can do, some of them are already doing, that is opening the joint enterprises. So when you can unite the Ukrainian labor force, Ukrainian uh, resources with the European technologies and money. And that what is really important. And we already see the Reinhold German company establishing the plant in Ukraine. We see the British BAE opening office in Kiev. We know about the start of the Turkish Bayrak terror plant uh, being constructed. And that is the idea that Ukraine uh, proposed a lot of other countries who are not ready to deliver the weapons, for example, to South Koreans. According to the South Korean legislation, it is prohibited to sell to the country in the war. But they are also very good in drones technologies, and they have a lot of money for investing in the military production, including drones. So for them, that is opportunity when they don't need just to come to the country. They can invest and do it for joint production that later will be very good, especially when Ukraine joined the European Union. That's the opportunity for other countries as well. Because in this case, if you understand that Ukraine is already the candidate country for the European Union membership. Each investment in the military-industrial complex is the twofold. It is the short term to secure what is necessary for Ukraine now, because you have less logistics, you have less production time and everything. But at the same time, it is the long-term investment, because that's what the countries can use in the future for the export, for example, or for the necessities for the capabilities within the European Union and NATO. For uh, will it be enough or not? That's the biggest question, because everything depends on the intensity of the situation on the battlefield. Just a small example, Ukraine per day uses what France produced per month. And that is not in the hottest period of time. So can Ukraine just supplement with the oil production everything what we're receiving from our partners? Definitely not. Plus, to produce something like Patriot system or Storm Shadow or Scalp, it's not what you can quickly build for the production in Ukraine. Here you need those technologies and those equipment production schemes that you already have have within the European partners. It's been very interesting for me, though, to see the success with which Ukraine has developed both airborne drones and also sea maritime drones. You know, that's been quite remarkable development over the last two years. Maybe a final question to Melinda. Maybe this is difficult for you as still a a serving British diplomat. But what do you think that the UK should now be doing to, to help Ukraine? And bearing in mind that the EU is a big player in assistance to Ukraine, are there areas where the UK can step up its cooperation with the EU to support Ukraine, either militarily or, or in other ways? Well, I don't think um, cooperation with the EU is such the issue because the UK has cooperated with the EU and not just on you know provision of military weaponry, but also, for example, sanctions. 
And the G7 plays a very useful uh, additional unifying role there, actually. So I don't think that's where it is. I actually do think defence production is the key thing here, where everybody needs to do more, but also where there are more innovative ways to do more, where you harness Ukrainian capabilities. So in some ways, Ukrainians are actually ahead of all of us in identifying what can be produced in the short term with the technology you have. While, as we all know, the kind of big stuff takes years and years to reach fruition, that more sustainable partnerships can produce some of the capability that, that Ukraine needs. And we, uh, we have been pretty good, actually, at focusing on defence production capability with ally countries in the East. Poland's a really good example of it. But I have wondered whether there isn't more we can do to reach in to what Ukraine itself is not waiting for others to do and see if we can't co-invest to speed up areas like drone technology, which Hannah had suggested. That's interesting. I think we've probably got time, if I can just ask you one more question, because you, you mentioned the cooperation with the EU on sanctions and so on. So, I mean, let me let me just ask you one supplementary on, on that, which is on the question of seizure of Russian assets. I mean, I've seen that the Foreign Secretary, Lord Cameron, has been quite forward-leaning on that. Is that something where, you know, you think that, that progress is being made? Because it seems to me that, you know, Lord Cameron is quite forward-leaning on it. Some Americans clearly are. There's been some action in Congress. But maybe some of the countries that actually are holding on to most of the Russian currently frozen assets have been less enthusiastic about actually seizing them and using them for assistance to Ukraine. So do you have any sense of, you know, is that debate making progress? Is the G7 actually going to do something about this or is it just going to continue to talk about doing something about it? Actually, I mean, Lord Cameron did make very clear fairly recently, didn't he? It was supported by the Prime Minister, his intention that seized assets could be or should be used for Ukraine reconstruction. And it's not a new thought. Ursula von der Leyen made the point herself in her introductory statement that seized Russian assets should form part of the resource for reconstructing Ukraine. Of course, President Zelensky has been calling for it for ages. From where I stand, the issue, of course, there are political issues, but actually the bigger thing is the legal framework for it. The UK would need to develop a legal framework for it. And those who own those assets are incredibly good and very well resourced at challenging, you know, legal frameworks for getting back their money. So the difficulty is a difficulty. It's a resolvable one, but it needs a huge amount of work is how you evolve a legal framework that both enables that to happen and then doesn't inadvertently set a precedent for what happens to seizure of assets in future scenarios that we don't. And it's an unbelievably difficult balance to get right. But I don't think you find too many people who disagree with the principle. Well, that's good. I hope you're right, because definitely we know that Russia has done hundreds of billions of dollars worth, euros worth, pounds worth of damage to Ukraine and it, its infrastructure over the last two years. It would be very good to see Russia's assets being put to work, repairing some of the damage. Let me just wrap up and say, for what it's worth, I mean, I do still worry that not enough of the people and certainly the governments in the West understand how much is at stake at this war, not just for Ukraine, but also for European and indeed for global security. I mean, it's great that Western leaders are still going to Kiev for their photo opportunities, but I think they need, when they come back, to do a better job of explaining why Ukraine's success is vital to us as well as to Ukrainians. And they need to make sure that the resources are being being allocated accordingly. I think we have to move on from standing with Ukraine for as long as it takes to helping Ukraine achieve victory with whatever it takes. 
Anyway, I think that's all we have time for today. I'm extremely grateful to my guests, Hannah Shellist and Dame Melinda Simmons. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast from the Centre for European Reform. If you've enjoyed it, please subscribe to the series on your preferred podcast platform and leave us a good review. Thank you very much and goodbye. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.